Okay, let's advance. All right, just a few things to, to set us up for where we are today from where we've been in chapter 5. Why was Jesus a better high priest? We just got finished with chapter 5. We just remembered that, that line from the lesson. So why was he a better high priest? What did we learn over the last two weeks from Mitch about Jesus being high priest? Why was he a better high priest? Sinless. He was sinless. He was... Son of God. He was son. He was high priest and son. He was chosen by God. He was chosen by God. He was. He was a king. So, which high priest was like that? Well, that's the next thing. What Old Testament priest is similar to that? Melchizedek. Was any Aaronic priest similar to Jesus in any way? No. Different tribe. Different characteristics, but. This Melchizedek is someone, is someone who was similar. And we were going to learn about that, but the Hebrew writer stops his discussion. Why? Why does the Hebrew writer stop talking about Melchizedek? John? Because they're not ready to hear the deeper information. They're not ready to hear about it. That's kind of a harder subject. And he says, I would like to go on and tell you about this, but you're not ready to hear about this. Why weren't they ready to hear about Melchizedek? What were they? They still needed milk, which is a sign of being spiritually what? They were immature. They, they had not progressed. In fact, he said you should have progressed. How far? They be, to be teachers. You should already be able to teach this, and I should be able to tell you a hard subject like Melchizedek, but you are spiritually mature. And what's the result of that? Well, specifically in this chapter, he really can't get into that deep stuff yet. What else is the result of that that we talked about? I mean, Mitch talked about this in several different ways over the last couple of weeks. Falling away. They, they, were, they were falling away. They needed, constantly needed milk instead of what? Meat, solid food, able to do that. And he said to them ultimately, you need to attain spiritual maturity. So how did he say that the Christian is to attain spiritual maturity? Give us a little phrase in there we talked about. How do you attain spiritual maturity? Knowledge. Okay, it's knowledge. That's the starting point. But chapter 5.14 says we have to do what with that knowledge? Use it. We have to exercise it. We have to exercise our knowledge so that we can do what? Discern good and evil. Growth is all about understanding what's good and what's evil. And faith is all about doing what? What's good. Once we understand and, and know what God wants us to do, and we believe His promises, now we can actually actively do them. That's how we exercise our senses. It's not just good enough to say, well, that's wrong, that's right, I'm going to do that wrong thing. That's not good enough. We have to go, that's wrong, that's right, I need to do this. Specifically for these Hebrews, what were they facing? What was happening? They were having persecution and trials. They were facing those things. And they were about to choose to do what? Go back to Judaism. Now, whether they thought that was right or wrong, we're not sure. But what's the Hebrews believe is the right thing to do? Stay with Christ. No matter what, because where else is there to go? And that's really what we're going to talk about as we go into the into the, 
the next chapter's eager. And they think Judaism was easier? It was easier for them because culturally they were surrounded by Jews. And so they were the, they were the sore thumbs that stuck out. And they were tired of that con constant bombardment of being different. And they were thinking about just stopping serving Jesus. Stopping being different. Whether that meant they were going to re-embrace Judaism or just cast off Christianity, we really don't know. It's really this, it doesn't matter. Once they cast off the Christianity, then it doesn't matter what you embrace and where you go back to. So, so that's really the setup for chapter 6. And we're talking about spiritual maturity and how spiritual maturity is so necessary for us to move ahead. So let's, as we um, progress here, let's have a quick prayer before we go on to the class this morning. Father, we thank you so much for this day and for this Lord's Day. And we anticipate, Father, the, the remembrance of Jesus and all he's done for us in our worship service. Help us, Father, as we study Hebrews to learn the lessons of growth. Help us, Father, to be committed to grow. Help us, Father, to know that growth in our faith is the only way that we can not only be pleasing to you, but that we can withstand the trials of this life. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'd like to just for you to listen and let's read the first three verses of Hebrews 6. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, and resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. He uses two phrases in this passage here that I want us to think about. He says, let's leave the elementary principles. And he said, let's not lay again the foundation. Now let's, let's think about this. <clears throat> elementary principles are for those who are consuming what sort of food from yeah. chapter 5? The milk, alright? So this would be the milk. This would be the things that are the foundational, the first things that, that are there. A foundation. I know all of you live in neighborhoods, you see houses built around you. When's the foundation built? First or last? First. First. You have know, lots in your neighborhood that are just a foundation, there's no house on them for a long time. Have you ever yeah. seen that happen where somebody maybe ran out of money? Is it complete? What good is a foundation if there's, not, if there's nothing else built on it, right? Well, that's really what the, the writer is bringing to mind here for us as he talks about. We have to go ahead and understand and then leave those principles so we can get on to the more difficult things. So, what are, in this writer's estimation of Hebrews, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, what are the elementary principles, the milk of the doctrine that he talks about in the list that he gives? Michelle? Okay. What else does he say is an elementary principle? Faith towards God. Faith, Faith towards, God. towards God. What else? Baptism. Repentance. Repentance. What else? Baptism. Baptism. Seems like they're. Okay, what did he say in the Let's stay in the text here first. Yeah. So, 
They said, I forget. Washing. Resurrection of the dead. Washings. Washings, yeah. Washings or baptism. Thank you. You were, or you were there. And then resurrection. One more. Laying on of hands. Laying on hands. Or was there one more? Eternal judgment. Eternal judgment. He didn't say eternal life, did he? He said eternal judgment. Interesting. Okay. I think we got them all. Let's see here. I think that. Okay. Your class exercise in your preparation material was to look at, was to come up with some thoughts about this because these are, according to the Hebrew writer, the elementary principles that if you're mature, you're moved on beyond. And so these are things clearly clearly understanding. So repentance from dead dead works. What is that? Why is that an elementary principle? What is it? It's works which were formerly formerly right, but now they're dead uh, since Christ came, such as animal sacrifices. Okay, it, it, it could have been things that they did before that now God has changed His law and He doesn't ask us to do. So that could, could certainly be that. Other thoughts that you have from that? Turning from sinful ways and repenting to God. Turning from sinful ways. A dead work is really anything that is something that does not please God. It actually takes us away from God. And so it might be another religious ritual from their former Judaism. It might simply be just not doing the right things with God. That's an elementary principle that, that we need to understand. That we have to turn away from works, from things we're doing in our lives that we know aren't pleasing to God and have no benefit for our lives in God. Okay, second one, faith towards God. This is the easy one, right? What is that? Believing and doing what God said. Believing and doing what God said. I mean, chapter 3, we've already talked about the Israelites saw God, they saw all of His wonders, and yet they got to the brink of going to the promised land, and they didn't believe He could help them get, defeat those giants in that land. So they stopped having faith. Their heart hardened. When do we stop believing that God can carry out His promises? That's when our heart will harden. Faith toward God really does go with repentance. We not only have to turn away from things, but what do we have to turn to? God. So there's something that has to happen in our life that's not dead works. And those are things that are prompted by God. Alright? What did you find about the doctrine of baptisms? This is an elementary principle now, folks. The doctrine of baptisms, or the doctrine of washing, some of your translations say. So what part of baptisms do we know? Okay, there's baptism for Jesus. We actually heard us talked about that today, right? With the Ethiopian eunuch. What other kind of baptisms do we know about? Baptism of John. We actually find who actually had to be corrected from about the baptism of John in the New Testament? Apollos, right? So he was teaching John. He didn't know about Jesus. So there was that. What other kinds of baptisms or washings were there? If you were a Jew, did you know the word baptism? Yes. You did. There were ceremonial washings that were there. And so there were all these things when someone hears they have to be baptized, what does that mean? Well, which one of those is the elementary principle of Christianity? Is it that we should go back first be a Jew, do ceremonial washings, and then go 
and be, do John's baptism and then go do Jesus' baptism. Is that what the elementary teaching is for a Christian? Which one is it? It's Jesus' baptism. It's baptism in the name of Christ, right? That's what is, is for us. So when we think about, do you understand what you were baptized into and what that meant? That's, that's about Jesus. Solely about Jesus. And not as clarification from the other things that they would have had on their minds. Today, what are some other baptisms that people might lack clarification on, by the way? Infant baptism. Infant baptism. I mean, Zion, if we sprinkle Zion, is that going to do him any good? Yeah. No, it's not. What other kind of baptisms do people practice? Holy Spirit. They think about the Holy Spirit baptism. That's, the Holy, that's, that's what I actually need to, to actually have and, and like it happened in the New Testament. We see about their, their religion too poor. Um, and, and doing that. And so, it's an elementary principle to know exactly what Jesus asked us to do. And they knew that. The laying on of hands. We're trying about that one. Okay? The apostles could lay on hands and transfer spiritual gifts, so that certainly could have been one of the things it was talking about. Anything else you saw? Sometimes the apostles would lay on hands as a, a sign of approval for uh, uh, whether you were uh, deacons or elders, you know, that figurative laying on of hands or uh, uh, going on a missionary journey, they laid on their hands as it were uh, as a sign of approval. We approve of what you're doing or getting ready to do. So he's not clear about that, but actually I would think both of those things were there. To understand... Who actually gets spiritual gifts and why they're they're given? So interestingly, who's someone who didn't understand that that we've read about in Acts? Simon the sorcerer. He thought, man, this is a great power. I think I'll buy it. Buy it. How'd that turn out for him? Not well. He got a he got a, a severe reprimand from Peter, and he yeah. repented and and yeah. and was forgiven for that. But. The laying on the hands has some some special meaning for them, and we were still at the time of Hebrews in the time when we were still apostles, and so there still could have been spiritual gifts imparted by the laying on the hands of an apostle. But I think as Mitch says, we can't we can't forget that there are people who are designated to be things such as leaders or special servants that were designated by that laying on the hands. And so it's who is designated to be your leaders? Who is actually given um, is, is is providing service? The resurrection of the dead. What's that all about? What's that elementary principle? I mean, you understand how that's going to happen, right? We're going to... resurrection from Okay, so it can be spiritual resurrection from our, from our sins. In fact, Romans actually says that that happens to us. Is that all that this is about? Physical on the last day that Jesus' second coming. Jesus' second coming can actually have... We'll see the resurrection of the dead as well. Now, this is an elementary principle. Anybody think of any New Testament Christians who had a problem with getting this? Sadducees didn't believe in it. That, that could be one reason, but think... 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. The Corinthians were saying there's not... They have people in their midst saying there wasn't going to be a resurrection of the dead. And the Hebrew writer says, well, there's no resurrection from the dead. Who didn't rise from the dead? Jesus. And so what does he say our faith is? That Jesus didn't raise from the dead? Good. It's in vain. We might as well go out and party. That Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Fundamental. There is no Christianity if there is no resurrection from the dead. Christ didn't raise. We're not going to raise. 
we're just a random event in the, in the universe, right? Which is what all the atheists would have you believe. Fundamental difference here. Eternal judgment. What do we learn about judgment in Hebrews? When it comes from God, what happens? Not that. What's that, Michelle? Not it. That's it. I mean, what happened to the Israelites? When God finally said, I'm done with you, what did He say? They will not enter my rest. They will not enter my rest, and they did not enter His rest. Eternal judgment is coming. So if eternal judgment is a foundational principle, and I'm receiving persecution today, and I'm thinking of going back, so what are we... What am I about to turn to? I'm about to turn into the face of God and say, I really don't think you can get me through this. I'd rather just see what you're going to do for eternal judgment. We don't want to face God for eternal judgment like that. And so these elementary principles, maybe they're not so elementary, but they really are. It's just if we don't have these kind of principles embedded in our life and our able and willing to actually teach them and know them, we can never progress on to the other the other aspects of what it takes to be a Christian. Tony? Well, the one uh, resurrection of the dead, when you, um, when you said, well, there's no resurrection of the dead, might as well go out and party. I, I always look at it as, okay, if that's not there, and, and we're living this way, what have we lost? You know, if, if Christianity tries to be false, what have we lost by following it? Whereas the like you said, an atheist, if if church is be true, they're screwed. So when when you think about these elementary principles, they drive us away from a, a mindset that evens that mindset because they drive us toward embracing God and believing God. This isn't a well, I'm going to do this in case it's right. This ultimately has to drive us to knowing it's right because. The Hebrews were facing it and they were being tested. If we don't absolutely and fully not only believe the elementary principles but go on to maturity, when we get our tests, we pass it. Hard to say we're going to pass the test if we actually have it going on to maturity. And so he says there, you need to go on to perfection. Do your other, do your other versions say have a different word there? Go on to maturity. Maturity is another word. Another word you might find is completeness. You have to leave the elementary principles, not by ignoring them, but by understanding them, and go on and become mature Christians. That's what we have to do. And the final verse says, This we will do if God permits. What are your thoughts about him saying that? This we will do. We will go on to perfection if God permits. God wants us to go on to perfection, right? Wouldn't God always permit that? Well, why does he say that? Because you're not ready for it. We're not ready for it. And what's coming? Judgment's coming, number one. God has patience. Is it infinite? No. What did we learn from the Israelites? How patient was he? He put up with them in Egypt. He put up with them. He gave them manna. He put up with them when they built the, the golden calf. Did he put up with them when they said we're not going into the land? He condemned them. At some point, God doesn't will that we have more time. If we has given us enough time to move ahead. And so, he's urging them, go on to perfection now. 
going on and maturing isn't something we get around to when it's we have time. You know, if I just read my scripture a little bit more next week, that's a good thing to do. But there's an urgency here, a sense of urgency that we have to be mature because what could be coming for us? What could be coming? Have we seen have we seen the kind of persecution the Hebrews had seen? I don't think so. You think it's, you think the possibilities are higher or lower right now that we'll see persecution as Christians, or our kids will see the persecution for being a Christian much higher than they were. Well, even if that is the event coming, how long do we have to prepare between now and when we first feel persecution? And if our faith isn't strong when we first feel it, what's going to happen at that test? Same thing was happening to them. It's wavering. They're thinking about giving it up. It's just better off not to stand up as a Christian than to go ahead and move ahead. Well, it's a whole lot easier just to go with the crowd. It is, it is. So I'd like to ask you this thought question. God's allowed a persecution to come to, to His people many, many times in history. Do you think this persecution was the call from the Hebrews to go ahead and mature? What happened when persecution hit the New Testament church in Jerusalem? What was the next thing that happened? They scattered. I mean, we read about Philip today. He was one of the scattered preachers out of Jerusalem. What happened to the gospel when that persecution happened in Jerusalem? It exploded to the rest of the world. I don't know what God has in store for American Christians. But we better be busy being ready for it because if that persecution comes, or maybe better, when that persecution comes, we have to be mature to be able to move ahead with our faith in the face of persecution. Because as the Hebrew writers always pointed out, the thing that we never want to do is say, well, God's promises really aren't so sure. I'm not so sure there really is a resurrection. I'm not so sure there... We don't want to face that side of the equation. Now, we won't read these passages, but we're going to look at for the rest of the class today the Christian who falls away. The Christian who falls away. Tell me, in verses 4 through 6, what you see as the initial state of the Christian who will ultimately fall away. What is the first state of that Christian? Where did they start? What are some words they used? They were enlightened. Go ahead. Tasted. They tasted what? A good word. Good word. What else? Partakers. Partakers of the Holy Spirit. Okay, partook. What else? It said tasted in there twice. One of the good word down lower, and it says the heavenly gift. The heavenly gift? I think there's one more. I don't think I'm Powers sure. of the age to come. Powers of the age to come. So, as you read those verses, there's five pieces there, but at least I read. Let's just pull them up here. Is this a theoretical of discussion of not really a real Christian who's falling away, but just kind of a model, a paper tiger maybe that we're going we're to attack here in this 
just a rhetorical discussion here. Is that what this is? Is this just a, a made-up person? Nobody really falls away, but if someone does fall away. In fact, do some of your versions say if in chapter, in verse 6, I believe? Verse 6? Uh, if you have the, new, the King James and New King James, uh, uh, several of those. Yeah, yes, they fall away. They'll say if. Um, you go look in the note, you'll find out that word's not actually in the original text at all. In fact, the ESV, the NA, New American Standard, American Standard actually just says, and have fallen away. Not if they fall away. Someone was this, and they've fallen away. Okay. Do you think the writer of Hebrews had experience in understanding people who, Christians who fell away? Falling away as a Christian a possibility? Absolutely. And, and so we, we need to read this and I can tell you when I read this, I say, wow, what if this was said about me? Greg was once enlightened. Okay, think about the symbolism of enlightened. What is that? To learn, solve the truth. Yeah. We've seen the truth. That, that word, how was that word light used? John 1. In who was light, and the, he was, the light was the life of man. In Jesus. To be enlightened is to actually know it. In this case, this is the secret of the universe. This is the center of God's plan. You knew and understood exactly what God's plan was for salvation, to redeem you together with God, and to have you in heaven for eternity. That's what being enlightened is. That's what being a Christian is, is to know that, to have that faith that makes us, makes us act. So yeah, it's a symbolic word, but boy, that, that word carries power. If I ever fell away, and it's like, Greg, you were enlightened. You knew exactly what God's Word had to say. And you knew what it would do for you. And you fell away. Tasted the heavenly gift. What is a heavenly gift? Salvation. Salvation. What, what are the passages tell us? Romans 6.23, I believe, tells us that and, salva and salvation is the gift of God, right? Maybe 6.23, and then all I've sinned, and, and then we can talk some about salvation is the gift of God. He could be talking about spiritual gifts as, as well here, and in the next one as well. I really don't think that's the, that's the real meaning of this. The gift that God gave us of salvation. Did our works or our merit ever earn us any salvation? No. It was a gift. We've actually held the gift of God. If we turn away, if we fall away, wow, that's a, that, that's a, a tough thing. Partakers of the Holy Spirit. There's really no way from the text and the words of the text to tell whether or not he's talking about those who had miraculous operation of the Holy Spirit on them, like the apostles and, and others, Cornelius and his household, where the Holy Spirit fell miraculously, or those who had uh, special gifts, or if it's the gift of the Holy Spirit talked about in Acts 2.38, which is not about the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. Does it matter? If we've experienced what the Holy Spirit can do in our lives and give us, a, give us in our lives, if we turn away from that, are we, are we foolish? They held, they were enlightened, they tasted the gift of salvation. They held the gift. They partook together with the Holy Spirit. And they tasted 
the good word of God. Have, have you and I experienced any of God's promises so far in our lives? When we were baptized. Remember how you felt after you were baptized? Remember how the weight was lifted off of you when you understood all what, what you had really done? Just the experience of He will save me from my sins at that minute you experience. The longer we live, you look back, can you see other places where you've experienced God's promises in doing that? So could the Hebrews. They can look at that as well. They had tasted the good Word of God. God had made promises and they had already experienced them. So if there's experience, there's promises that we're yet to experience like we're going to be strong enough to get through persecution and God's going to stand with us. That when we die, we're actually going to be with Him in paradise and we're going to go to heaven at the judgment day. Do we have any down payments on those promises now that teach us that well, we God's been true to His Word up until now. Yeah. So is He going to be true to the rest of His Word that we haven't yet experienced? Yeah. We have to believe that. We absolutely have to believe that. We have no reason not to. And we have nowhere else to turn either. Exactly. He tasted, we have tasted the powers of the age to come. The powers of the age to come. What was the age to come to these people? Is he talking about something in the future? When that, when that phrase, the age to come, is used in the New Testament, what's it generally talking about? It's talking about Messiah, right? That's the, they were looking for this age to come, this time of the Messiah. You've tasted the powers of the age to come. This is, they're in the process still of changing from that Judaistic, Judaistic age into this age, so this is early on in that process. We fully experience the power of the age to come. We fully live in the times of Messiah. Now, is he talking about just those signs and wonders and miracles? Could be. Do you and I get to experience those signs, wonders, and miracles, by the way? Not with our eyes, but how do we experience the signs, wonders, and miracles that were actually given to assure them that this was from God? The work. We actually can experience those same things. We might not have seen it, that doesn't mean we don't have the opportunity to be moved by it, just as they were moved by it as well. And the word that's actually used here, the power, is the exact same Greek word that's used in Romans 1.16. You probably remember what Romans 1.16? The gospel of God is the power of God to salvation. It's the dynamite is really what that word is. It's what moves us to understand. So we've, un we've understood this. So I ask you this question as we, go, as we go ahead looking at this. Were these people that were being talked about in verses 4 through 6 truly converted people? No. Yes. Someone who's enlightened, who's tasted the heavenly gift, partook the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God, and tasted the power of the age to come, were they truly converted? Sure. I don't know how to, any other way to say you're truly converted than that. I mean, they were fully in the midst of, of receiving God's promises and understanding God's promises and living God's promises. They were people who were truly converted. And whether or not the writer is thinking of other people who he has seen be converted and fall away, or is he thinking of the Hebrews who are starting to fall away, doesn't matter. They were... In, they were in a, in a position that they should have known and understood the blessings of those who are Christians. 
And so now he talks about their final state. So we, let's just work through these one at a time. The final state of the Christian, he uses the phrase, they are fallen away. What does that mean when we, with respect to God's favor? If we are fallen away. We've rejected our We've rejected it. We've, we've gone away from it. When the Israelites had fallen away, what happened to them? They got cut off. They got cut off. They got to wander in the desert and die. Their corpses fell there. That's, that's the state. That someone who turns on God's promises, are, they are falling away. Not only are they falling away, they do what? This is a scary, scary phrase. They uh -huh. crucify again for themselves the Son of God. Yeah. Why did the Jews crucify Jesus? Because they told them the truth. Well, they... They didn't want to hear what he had to say, right? So they put him away. Don't want to hear what he has to say, even though it's the truth. Why else? What, what they were expecting. Wasn't what we wanted. We want something different. Fear. They feared him? What else? They just fear him? How about the, how about the leaders of the Pharisees? They feared him. Jealous. Jealous? Maybe. They were jealous. They hated him. They just hated him. Yeah. Alright. When we fall away, we jump in that group. Oh. We've, we don't want to hear from Christ. We hate Him. We don't, want to, we don't want anything to do with Him. We'd just rather Him be gone. They thought they were just getting rid of Him. When we crucify the Son of God afresh by falling away, that's really what we're doing. Just, just kind of get on my life. I don't want to hear this anymore. I don't want to do what I want to do. I don't want, you're not what I expect. Your commands are too hard. I just want to move on. That's what most people outside this building A lot of people would. Austin? The colorful language in Second Peter two, um, you know, warning against false teachers, did the same thing. You know, you've escaped the pollutions of the world, like you did it. You know, you were enlightened, and then um, through the knowledge of Lord and Savior, and then you're entangled again. You're overcome, like you went back, and the latter is worse than the beginning. Very similar well, thought there. It really is, and there's some. We can pull some other passages up here, trying to have some, some graphic pictures to look at too. The dog, the dog back to the vomit. The pig that was washed back into the mud. It's worse than the first, because we put the Son of God to open shame. If I don't want to be identified as a Christian because I'm being persecuted, what am I of Christ? I'm ashamed of Christ. I don't want to be identified as a Christian. I want to just blend in and be away. The Son of God was put to open shame by hanging on that cross. That's what we do when we fall away. Now, this really must stop right here. Without a doubt, sin will take us down a path where we fall away. But is he talking about the Christian who messes up and commits a sin here in this phrase? Is that what no. he's really talking no. about? More this so fall, just denying Christ. And and is that an instantaneous thing or does that take time for a Christian to? Just from our own experiences, those we know who've fallen away, it takes time. They're drifting. They're drifting away. They're, it's a process. Well, they, it could be. I'm sure some people that just one day said, "The heck with it." But, know, but even even that, when you come to the end of that and say that, that wasn't what you woke up that morning as your first thought. It's been a process to step away, and we actually learned that from the Israelites. They kept stepping away, kept stepping away, kept stepping away until they were gone.
And that's the process of repression. So why is the writer here writing this book? Because these people are aware. They're on the road. They're starting the process. And it's time to turn back and, and not go, go down that road. He says, it is impossible, and it's putting together verse 4 and verse 6, but he says, it is impossible to renew such people into repentance. Does that mean when someone falls away, we just give up with them and say, well, they're gone? What does Jude 23 say? Snatch them out of the fire if you can. This, is a, this isn't something that, that we do because we go, well, we just have to give up on them because there's no hope for them. They've fallen away. We have all kinds of places to intervene. The Hebrew writer is trying to intervene in these people's lives to keep that from happening. But at the end of the day, what is the key thing that has to happen with this kind of a person who's, who's done this? What has to happen to them before even God himself can turn them back? Their hearts were being hardened. And, and, and it is impossible for God to bring them back as long as their hearts are still hardened. It's impossible. Think about the, and that was our bell, but just I will leave you with this. Think about the Jesus parable of the prodigal son. Did the prodigal son walk this path? He wasn't a Christian yet, but we see someone who walked this path and walked away from everything and wasted all the good privileges and the good things his father had given him. What did it take for the prodigal son to turn around? Did his father go snatch him out of the pig's mud? Change of heart. He had to change. He had to realize that this is the and that's really his point here. The only way, when you get to this point of walking this process, the only way you're going to turn back to God is you have to turn back to God. Because God has nothing. What, what's God going to give you He hasn't already given you? Does He have another Christ? Is there another message, another good news? Absolutely not. So, we'll finish up the chapter on Wednesday night. Thanks for everybody's uh, great participation today. And, uh,